This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Olmsted County, Minnesota. Olmsted County was one of the first of several counties established in what is now Southeast Minnesota, after the Minnesota Territory was officially set up on March 3rd, 1849. In Southeast Minnesota, it's a unique county with its mix of urban and rural areas. Its county seat, the city of Rochester, which had a population of approximately 119,000 back in 2019 the state's third largest city after Minneapolis and St. Paul. Outside of the Rochester Metro, the rest of the county is primarily farmland and small agricultural-based communities. The next largest community is the city of Stewartville, 13 miles south of Rochester with a population of just over 6,000. This area of Olmsted County was developed as a stagecoach stop between St. Paul and Dubuque, Iowa, near the Zumbrell River. It also became a major stop for the new Winona and St. Peter Railroad years later. The community was founded by George Head and his wife Henrietta, who built a log cabin named Head's Tavern in 1854 and named the city after his hometown of Rochester, New York. In a land of 10,000 lakes, Rochester is also unique as it's one of only four counties in the state without a natural lake. This year, Jimmy Carter, the former governor of Georgia, beat President Gerald Ford to become our 39th president of the United States. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. 
The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Super Bowl XI was held at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California this year. The Minnesota Vikings were beaten by the Oakland Raiders 32-14, the Vikings' fourth appearance and fourth Super Bowl loss. From the Rose Bowl Stadium in Pasadena, California, it is Super Bowl XI. This is Bill King with a welcome. Everything in the United States, everything really in a sports sense in the world, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, dies in his home this year in Graceland at the age of 42. 75,000 fans lined the streets of Memphis for his funeral, which occurred on August 18th. Elvis Presley died today. He was 42. Apparently it was a heart attack. He was found at his home in Memphis, not breathing. His road manager tried to revive him. He failed. A hospital tried to revive him. It failed. His doctor pronounced him dead at 3 o'clock this afternoon. The end at an early age of one of the two most spectacular careers in the history of American entertainment, the other being Frank Sinatra's. Presley was very nearly at the, the year was 1977. The U.S. was on the backside of a severe recession. It was a time of continued inflation and recession. We were in an emergency crisis here in the U.S. Gas prices were climbing, and the nation had an unemployment rate of around 9%. Rochester's population back then was around 58,000 people, nearly two-thirds of Olmsted County's population of 92,000. Charles R. Von Wald had been sheriff in Olmsted County since 1971. Bert Berge was one of the sheriff's patrol sergeants at the time. And he'd been a captain with the sheriff's department prior to that so he had a lot of background a lot of experience he knew all of us very well he was in charge from then on he lived in the city chuck was a real good supervisor he knew how and he started bringing a lot of the modern technology in real quickly the rochester police department had nearly 100 sworn officers back then led by longtime police chief james j mackett homestead county had a staff of around a dozen deputies I started, as I said, in 1967, and I think we had 14 or 15 deputies at that time. And we wouldn't even have all-night coverage. Uh, village of Sturtville and the village of Byron had their own police officers at that time. Uh, in 1977, when this incident took place, I think we were up probably about 22 or 23 deputies at the most. And we had 24-hour coverage. We worked eight-hour shifts, rotated around. Sometimes we had rotations, and we had other shifts that worked power shifts, certain hours when we had the biggest workload and so forth. County was responsible for a lot more area at that time. Rochester wasn't a very big uh, geographically, in a sense. A lot of the streets where all the houses are and so forth now were just dirt streets or dirt roads at that time. The city dump was right on the north edge of town where there's one of the main streets now and so forth. Probably be two officers to patrol in the county and one person on the radio. It was a warm May in that spring of 1977. The average temperature that month was 80 degrees. 
Rochester was home to the Mayo Clinic and to IBM. That year, IBM Rochester became their headquarters for their hard disk development and manufacturing with a workforce of nearly 6,000. Even then, IBM hosted just a fraction of the employees that worked at the Mayo Clinic system. If you lived in Southeast Minnesota back then, you likely knew many people who worked at one or the other. Rochester was where many people worked, shopped, and frequented for its restaurants and its entertainment. In the 70s, the city of Rochester saw tremendous growth, which meant adding many new officers to their police department. One time, I think they added like 10 or 12 people on at one time in order to get more people because all of a sudden they were ex the city was expanding and they didn't have enough people to cover. They hired a lot of people, uh, about 70 or 72 in that area. They really started to grow and the city started to grow then. And that's obviously when we started adding a few more people too. One of the deputies they added to patrol during that time was Deputy Jack Dean Werner. He worked as a jailer and didn't work on the street at all when he very first started. And he spent some time in there and he'd had uh, experience working in a prison in Illinois before he came here. So he'd had experience working in the big time as far as prisons or holding people goes and so forth. That would have been one of our expanding things. And when we decided we were going to have more deputies, he got to move out and start working on the street. And he always, from the very first day he was there in uniform, he came across as being really top of all of it. You know, he had former military experience. He had been a paratrooper and I think some other things in the service. So everything was spit and polish. And his whole lifestyle was that way. He just went straight with everything. You could always rely on him. He was just a super personality fit right into our department. Jack was born in 1943 in Tracy, Minnesota to Earl Jack Bud Warner and his wife Viola. Life was busy for the Warner family with two young kids. Jack had served as a paratrooper and a ranger in the Vietnam War before he was hired by the Olmsted County Sheriff's Office. By 1977, he was a seasoned deputy, having been with Olmsted County for five years. His appointment to the Sheriff's Office fulfilled a lifelong ambition to become a law enforcement officer. Vicki, his wife of 12 years, told friends at one point that Jack accepted his work and the risks that came with it because he, he really liked his job. And because of this, she accepted his work and the risks, too. When Jack wasn't working, he loved the outdoors. He loved archery and landscaping. They lived on Harbor Drive Southeast in Rochester in a modest, small home, their yard always meticulously gardened and landscaped. Bert was a supervisor that night. He worked the 2 to 10 shift. He met Jack in the garage when Bert was getting off shift and Jack was just getting started. I was going to get done work at 10 p.m. or 2200 and I was in the garage being the supervisor. Sometime after nine, I was in the garage gassing up my car and leaving it for the next shift because we just traded cars. Everybody drove the same cars on different shifts. And Jack was coming on duty at eight o'clock that night. So he'd been at his briefing and getting ready to go out. He was coming through the garage to go on his patrol shift. They had certain places they had to be so they would cover during our shift change at 10 o'clock that evening. And they, he, it was his first night back to work after being on vacation. 
Prior to going on vacation, he had borrowed some camping equipment from me because they had never did a camping trip before, him and his family. But I remember we were standing there, and one of the last things I remember him saying that they'd had so much fun, it went so good, they were going to do it again next year. That was a big thing. It had been a busy night for the Olmstead County Sheriff's Office. That night, there was also other trouble in town. They would soon learn the name James Edward Lee. Lee was a 22-year-old rural Pine Island man. He was involved in a theft of drugs from a pharmacy in Hickory, North Carolina back in December of 1973. And then soon after, he jumped bail and he came to Minnesota. In 1975, while in Minnesota, he married Sharon Golden in Stewartville after a short dating period. Lee then became a suspect involving the theft of some archery equipment at the St. Charles Sporting Goods store back in September of 1976. It was then that the two fled back to his home state of North Carolina. Lee and Sharon returned to Minnesota several months later and then were divorced sometime in the early spring of 1977. Lee had been picked up around 8.30 that night by friends on a residential street behind Annie's Liquor in the Crossroads Shopping Center on South Broadway. Lee parked his ex-wife's gold Plymouth station wagon there and got into their blue 65 Pontiac Le Mans. His friend Tracy was in the car along with his sister Anne, who was the driver, and a friend Tammy, all teenagers. In the past, Lee had partied and smoked marijuana with Tracy. They had known each other for about two years. Lee had actually been married to Tracy and Anne's mom's half-sister. They went to a liquor store where Lee bought a case of Miller bottles, and then they drove out to the Outdoor Theater South for a movie. When they picked up Lee, he had a 20-gauge sawed-off shotgun wrapped in a yellow baby blanket with him, and he made it clear to them what his intentions were. When they picked him up that night, he got in the car and told them that he was going to kill a cop that night. That was his goal. He was in the back seat, and he was going to kill a cop. The kids who were with him at the shooting testified later that Lee didn't appear to be drunk, that his speech was not slurred, and that he didn't lose coordination. They also testified that he almost always had the shotgun with him. After the movies, they went to Eastwood Park, which is just east of the theater, walked up into the woods, and they continued drinking. They had all consumed somewhere between five and seven beers when Lee decided it was time for him to get back to his car. They dropped off Tammy at home, and then they drove to where Lee's car was parked when they noticed a red Mustang coming down the street. Lee quickly got back into the car. He didn't want to be seen getting out of the car with his shotgun, and then they rode around the block, and the Mustang followed them. Lee and the others then drove into a shopping center parking lot as the Mustang continued to follow, and Lee had Ann maneuver the car behind the Mustang as it left the parking area. Now they were chasing the Mustang, and Lee asked the others if he should shoot out the Mustang's taillight. One said yes, the other said no, and then Lee put his shotgun out the window and he fired in the direction of the other car. The red car then sped up and took off down 16th Street Southwest, and a high-speed chase ensued. There were two brothers in the Mustang who mistakenly thought that they knew the people in the car that Lee was riding in, so they followed them until they got shot at. Then they fled and the blue Pontiac followed. As this was happening, Deputy Jack Warner observed their driving, and he turned around on the blue Pontiac that he saw following the Mustang at a high rate of speed. 
While Jack called into dispatch what was going on, Lee started yelling instructions to Ann, the driver, to keep going, to keep going. Lee wanted her to outrun the police car. They turned into the Apache Mall parking lot and drove around by the Oakview Theater, which was a movie theater that used to sit in the southwest corner of the mall lot off 16th Street. At one point by the south entrance of the mall, they ended up fishtailing. They spun the vehicle around and it stalled out. Now they were facing Jack's squad car. The Apache Mall opened in 1969 on a 99-acre lot at the intersection of Highway 52 and Highway 14. Back in 1977, it was the third largest enclosed shopping center in Minnesota with 45 tenants and 540,000 square feet. J.C. Penney and Montgomery Ward were its first anchor stores. By 1977, Dayton's, which was founded in Minneapolis and was known to many locals as more of a high-end department store, was the newest anchor store to add to their store list. Dayton's was the parent store to their discount version that they called Target. The Apache Mall parking lot has a huge parking lot. It accommodates over 3,700 vehicles. Jack quickly drove up and positioned his squad car in front of their car, about three feet away. Lee was yelling at Ann to ram him, ram him, but she was unable to do so because the car's motor was still dead. After stopping his squad car right in front of their car facing it, Jack got out of his squad. He crossed between the two vehicles and he walked towards the driver's window where Ann was sitting. Lee was sitting behind her, waiting. As Jack walked towards the driver's door, Lee started to get out of the car and said, I've got to kill him. I've got to kill him. He then fired the shotgun twice. Jack was struck twice by the shotgun blasts. One entered his front lower right side, and the second entered his body at an upward angle through his left side slightly on his back. As Jack was going down, he was able to draw his Smith & Wesson 19. It was his duty weapon. It was a 357, and he fired one shot, striking their car in the front driver's side fender. The second shotgun blast struck Jack in the chest, and doctors said it likely killed him almost instantly. A Minnesota state trooper who was in the area looking for a stolen vehicle saw it all happen. Lyle Loading, a state trooper, was heard what was going on. He pulled in to back up the officer. As he pulled in the driveway, he saw Lee shoot Jack. He saw Jack go down, and he saw Jack crouching and shoot a bullet at the car. When the trooper drove around and got to the south entrance of the mall, he testified that he saw the blue Pontiac facing west at the intersection. Approximately 30 feet southeast of the vehicle, he said he saw someone laying on the ground. He said there was a young girl standing outside screaming and a county squad car with lights on that was pulling away from the scene. When the trooper got out to check on the body on the ground, that's when he realized it was Deputy Jack Warner from the Olmsted County Sheriff's Office. He called it in to dispatch and then he stayed and provided care until help came. Jack's squad car was found abandoned. It was still running. It had flat front tires. The windshield wipers were still running. And Lee had escaped. He got in the squad and took off and he went around the curve there in uh, the mall 
you went behind where McDonald's is now. That was a different McDonald's at that time, and there was a street going behind it, and drove it into the creek. And we figured then, putting things together, piecing and stuff afterwards, that he waded across the river there and got over on the bank on the other side. Birch had gotten home after his two-to-ten shift, and he was winding down for the night when he got a call around midnight about the shooting, and he was called back in to help. By the time I got to the office, and I lived five minutes away from the courthouse at that time, by the time I got there, then they informed me that he'd been shot and killed. We didn't know that when I got the original phone call, and that they were looking for kids in this car, which was the wrong information at that point. We didn't know any different, and they hadn't learned from the people that were driving the car that he was in hadn't learned anything from them yet. It was too early in the investigation. They hadn't, everything was completely chaos right then, obviously. Now, remember, this was 1977. There were no computers in the squads. There were no cell phones. Communication was limited to what they could air on the radio. And Bert and Detective Fisher believed the shooting suspect was likely part of the crew that was causing trouble earlier that evening. So they started searching for him. Detective Fisher and I wound up following her taking information and going over into Dodge County and stopping a car and checking it out and so forth, thinking that was the people that had did this because we thought it was the group that had been causing all the problems prior to the end of our shift. Then in the meantime, after this incident took place, Lee was in a car with two people. They stayed at the scene when he stole the squad car and left the scene. And they told the officers at the scene then who it was and so forth. So then we got notified that no, that's not the people we need, that the ones we had laying down face down in the highway over north of Vanderbilt that let them go, they didn't the do scene, anything. It was chaotic. This agency had never lost an officer before. This kind of thing just didn't happen in small county agencies in Minnesota. When they finally got the correct information relayed to them from the kids at the scene, they identified Lee as the shooter Officers discovered that his car was now gone from where it was parked by Andy's liquor, and the kids told the deputies that he was staying at a rented farmhouse in Goodhue County with his ex-wife. They knew he'd been working on a farm up in Goodhue County. That's how we found out about the place, and then so then we started looking at in Goodhue County to see if he went home. Detective Fisher and I were the first car following uh, Goodhue County cars we met in Pine Island. And they're taking us because they know the landlord where these farms are that rent farmsteads for hired men. And they're taking us to this place. And I guess there was two, three, maybe five cars behind us. I mean, it was a lot of people. Everybody from different agencies are along helping us at that point. We went to a farm and rousted out people in there got them out of bed and stuff, held them at gunpoint while we were searching the house and so forth. And we got about halfway through the search thing, couldn't find the guy we were looking for. And somewhere along the line, they informed us we were at the wrong farm. Evidently, the farmer in question had two properties for hired hands. They then all responded to the next farm site. When they got to the second farm, they could see the gold Plymouth station wagon that the kids had told them Lee was driving. It was parked in the front yard. They knew they were at the right farm now. 
they had law enforcement from multiple agencies with them and they started to surround the property. Then they saw a male party walking up from behind the property across the field on the backside of the home. From all around, officers moved in on Lee, including Dodge County deputies with their police dog. Lee saw the officers and the dog coming. He threw his hands in the air and he dropped his backpack and duffel bag that he had with him and he he gave up. It was 6.15 a.m. There was a compound bow, which was believed stolen from the St. Charles incident. He had tools, two bags of marijuana, several 35-millimeter film canisters full of marijuana seeds, clothing, a sleeping bag, arrowheads, knives, etc. After Lee was in custody, authorities obtained a search warrant, and they searched the farmhouse and the adjacent buildings on the property for the shotgun. Finally, they discovered the shotgun a Winchester 1200 20-gauge with a sawed-off barrel. It was located beneath a manure spreader about 60 yards from the farmhouse. Now they had their murder weapon. After they transported Lee back to the jail in Rochester and they sat him down in the interview room at the LEC, it was around 7 a.m. Lee quickly told the officers, I'm not telling you a fucking thing. Jack's murder was a wake-up call for everyone. This is the kind of incident you hear about in the big city, not in a small county and certainly not in southeast Minnesota. Jack Warner was actually the second law enforcement officer killed in the line of duty in the city of Rochester. Just over 10 years earlier, Rochester officer Floyd Haley was killed in August of 1967. He was investigating suspicious activity at a business on the north side of town. Prior to that, the last officer shot in the line of duty in southeast Minnesota was back in 1954. One of the saddest points in this case is that bulletproof vests had not been purchased up to this point due to cost until Jack was killed. A couple days after that, the county board met. Might have even been an emergency meeting type thing and approved buying one for every one of us. They had a Somebody came down from Uniforms Unlimited and measured us all and everything. We all got point-blank vests about a week, 10 days after that. Lee was held in the Olmsted County Jail on a $100,000 bond after he was charged with first and second degree murder. In charge of the case was County Attorney D.P. Madsen, along with Assistant County Attorney Ray Schmitz. The Honorable Judge Gerald Ring from Olmsted County was on the bench. Lee was also charged under two alias names, Marshall Golden and Hugh Marshall Golden. Golden was the last name of his ex-wife at the time, the mother of their young child. The trial, which began September 12th, moved from Rochester to Winona when pretrial publicity in Rochester prompted Lee's attorney, James Sook, to request a change of venue. Attorney Sook remembers Jack well. At the time, I was sitting in the dentist chair, and Judge Ring somehow tracked me down. The dentist gave me the phone, and he asked if I would represent this fellow, and my dentist was just right across the street. So it was all court appointments. Uh, there was no real public defender's office except on a statewide basis, uh, and that, was, uh, that really didn't get down here very often. So it was, it was pretty much that was the um, trial training for most of the young lawyers in Rochester. Early on, I don't recall, there, there came a conversation about these, not obviously us guys were concerned about the defense attorneys. This guy is dead, right? We know what he did and everything. And it got, I can remember on a break, 
Jim and whoever his second chair was, we were talking, and he explained it to me and a couple other guys that were standing there. He says, my concern about this, he says, first off, he was worried about he was going to hurt his reputation, that all the cops would be against him in the first place. He said, told us that. He was worried about doing it, as doing this, and he didn't. I think at that time, I think judges assigned them guys because we didn't have uh, public defenders, you know. And Jim said, my goal is to make sure that there's nothing done wrong in this trial, so they have to do a retrial or that anything can happen. And I respected him for that. I knew him a little bit prior to that, knew or always respected him anyway, that he was a good attorney. So Sook attempted to present an insanity case and had Mayo Clinic doctors testify on behalf of his client, arguing that Lee did not premeditate the shooting, but acted in the heat of passion out of irrational fear of law enforcement officers and being imprisoned. County Attorney Matson had several doctors testify on the prosecution's behalf. They testified that Lee had an inadequate personality with schizoid and paranoid trends, but argued that he was not psychotic and possessed the ability to make decisions, like when he said twice before the shooting, I gotta kill him, I gotta kill him. They explained that individuals with such personality disorders are still able to distinguish right and wrong. During the trial, the state trooper testified that he saw Lee with the shotgun. During the trial, the county attorney's asking him questions, he's asking him about the shooting, and he tells, he says, I saw him, he had pointing the gun at him, and fired, and he ejected a shell and pumped it and fired a second time. Well, every time during the trial when they'd come up with that gun to show it for evidence, you know, and during had different people testifying it and stuff, Dwayne Matson was a county attorney. He'd refuse. He wouldn't even pick the gun up off the table. He'd make the, whoever was testifying pick it up. He was like he was scared to death of it. During his closing argument, he's talking about this guy got out of the back of the car. He laid his gun across the hood and he fired it. And he pumped it like this and ejected it and he pumped it like this and fired again. And he used that gun like he'd been an old time veteran with it. The most impressive thing I've ever seen an attorney do in my life. <laughs> oh man. And I've never forgot that. After over eight hours of deliberation, the Winona County jury found Lee guilty of first degree murder. Immediately after receiving the verdict, Olmstead County Judge O. Russell Olson imposed the state's first-degree murder sentence of life in prison. Under state law at that time, with time off for good behavior, Lee would be eligible for parole in 25 years. That night, he was transported to the Olmstead County Jail, and then the next morning, transported to the Minnesota State Prison in Stillwater. We brought him back from Winona that night, put him in jail, obviously. It got to be, I suppose, midnight or so, but the next morning, they didn't waste any time. The next morning, I'm guessing 7, 38 o'clock, they're putting him in the car, taking him to Stillwater. And I lived just a few blocks down from the courthouse, so they had to go right by my house in order to go to the cities. And Vicki was at my house having coffee with my wife and I, and we got I always had a scanner going. We heard them say they were in service, leaving the garage en route to Stillwater. We went out in the sidewalk so she could watch them go by, and she stood there and gave them the finger when they set at the red light at the stop sign, <laughs> waiting to go. I'll never forget how happy she was giving him the finger. 
Lee would kill another man a few years later in prison. And prison is where he would spend the rest of his life. Deputy Jack Warner was 33 years old when he was murdered, and he left behind Vicki, his wife, and his two beautiful daughters, seven-year-old Tracy and 18-month-old Wendy. Jack's funeral was held on a cloudy, drizzly Friday afternoon, May 20th, three days after his murder. Nearly 700 officers from all 87 Minnesota counties, plus state patrol and departments from northern Iowa and western Wisconsin, filled Redeemer Lutheran Church in southeast Rochester to pay their respects to this hero. The funeral was led by Reverend Roger Polanski. It was also attended by Attorney General Warren Spanis and the Minnesota FBI Chief John Otto. The Rochester Post Bulletin reported that nearly three blocks in every direction outside the church, all you could see were squad cars side by side from every type of agency lining the roads. When the service ended, the flag-draped coffin with a bouquet of white mums and yellow roses was carried outside by six pallbearers, all deputies who served with Jack. Outside, more than 100 officers, including nearly the entire Olmstead County Sheriff's Office and Rochester Police Department, formed an honor guard and saluted as the coffin passed. Tears mixed with rain rolled down the cheeks of many of the officers standing in attention. The funeral procession stretched nearly two miles to the cemetery, where a brief service was followed by a seven-man VFW honor guard firing a three-volley rifle salute while a lone bugler played taps. The U.S. flag from the coffin was presented to Vicky on behalf of the veterans of foreign wars. Men and women who dedicate their life to service, like Jack Warner, don't sign up for the military or for law enforcement for the money. Most have to take on all the overtime they can get or part-time jobs just to make ends meet and keep the lights on. They certainly don't do it for the great hours. Or for the weekends off, these heroes miss holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, their kids' ball games, band concerts, and other special events. Why do these men and women take on this monumental calling? Because they care. These amazing people care. They genuinely care. They get involved to make a difference. Because they love their country and their community and are willing to take on extraordinary risks that 99% of the country would never consider taking on because they care. Because they are heroes. Jack cared. A lesson he learned from his parents Earl and Viola, who, in spite of losing their son in such a senseless and violent way, said they felt sorry for the man who killed Jack too. It also takes a special person to be a law enforcement spouse, like Vicki. They sacrifice so much for their community, watching their officer walk out the door for every shift, day and night, not knowing if they'll ever come back, always putting others first. Like Vicki requesting all memorials to go to the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association, which is the state organization that helps fallen officers and their families, because that's what Jack would have wanted even though it was unclear how she would take care of the kids with Jack gone. 
Sheriff Von Wald said he was one of the best deputies in the department. Polite and courteous, the kind you never get a complaint about. Olmsted County Sergeant Gerald Hansen said he was an outstanding professional, the kind of guy who other officers would turn to with their problems, both on or off duty. Even after all these years, Attorney Sook remembers Jack well. You know, if you have any kind of a military background, you go back far enough, there was a word. It was a STRAC, S-T-R-A-C. It means a well-organized, well-turned-out soldier, pressed uniform, polished brass, shine boots. Somebody who could be defended upon for good performance in any circumstance. And, and I always said, plus the fact he, he looked, he had a soldierly look to him. He had a short crew cut. He was always uh, immaculately turned out. Uh, he was extremely courteous. Um, he was just a really good man. Jack Warner loved his country, and he loved his county, and he served both proudly. He gave his life trying to keep his community safe. Jack is remembered each year in Washington, D.C., in St. Paul, and in Rochester at their respective law enforcement memorial programs. His picture is displayed in the annex of the Olmsted County Sheriff's Office in Rochester, Minnesota. Our mission in telling stories like the Jack Warner story is to ensure the service and sacrifice of heroes like Deputy Warner are never forgotten. And also to remember and honor the sacrifices made by their family and friends left behind. Thank you for spending the time to listen learn about and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. A Huda Media Production.